This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Roberta Blevins, and this is Life After MLM a podcast where we work to end the stigma of failure in an industry systemically designed for you to fail. Join us as we dive into the real-life stories of survivors, experts, and advocates to debunk the common myths and fallacies of cults, scams, and multi-level marketing. Hey, Hunbots and Hunbros. Do you know what's really cool? I'm ahead in editing. Thanks to Kayla, who is amazing. And I don't know how I went two whole years on the podcast without having any extra help. I'm ahead. I am recording this before the episode you guys heard last week even came out. That's how ahead I am. I am like a week and a half ahead. And I'm already editing the next episode. So like, ooh. No, I sing her praises in every episode. But oh my God, Kayla, you are such a lifesaver and I love you so much. <laughs> So I'm actually really excited about this episode. I have been preparing you guys for this topic over the last couple months, talking about different things. And a lot of it is going to converge in this episode, which I'm kind of excited about. Uh, trigger warnings for people who are listening right now and, and in the present company you are in. I just wanted to let you know, we talk about supremacy culture. We talk about anti-fat bias. We talk about autism and intersectional feminism and all of the ways that these sort of come into MLMs and cults and scams. We talk about eating disorders and body dysmorphia. We talk about sex work. We talk about one-on-one -on -one abuse it's a lot, but it's really good. And so if you're already feeling triggered right now, maybe skip it and come back to it. But it is a really important one. It's really great. It's with Lila Feinstein of A Stripper's Guide. And it is just, seriously, it's, they're conversations that I've just kind of always wanted to have. And the fact that I get to have them now in a safe space where I'm able to educate and learn and unpack my own preconceived notions and biases. It's just, it's really a beautiful thing. And healing is such an incredibly amazing and beautiful thing. And um, I do not think the Roberta Blevins of two or three years ago would have ever been able to have this conversation um, just coming from a place of like, oh my God, I don't want to talk about that. But it's so important and we have to have uncomfortable conversations. So I know we talked about sex work before with the Paige Birchfeld episode in October, and it's come up sort of in a few other episodes. And, um, you know, this is the big one. This is the big one. We've been, we've been training for this, you guys. I know you're ready. Lila's joy. The entire episode was fun to record and edit and everything. And I think that you're really going to enjoy it as well. In my personal life, um, 
my dog, Jaja, the feral Afghan hound, has just her her fur. She's literally made out of the soft part of Velcro. Like that's what her fur is. It's just this really fluffy, curly hair. And after all of the rains that we've had, and I live on an acre and we don't have any livestock to take care of the weeds, um, but I'm really looking into renting a goat <laughs> for this exact reason. I'm in a vicious cycle. Jaja, I took Jaja to go get a haircut because her mats are getting bad and the foxtails are getting stuck in it. So I was like, we'll go get a haircut. But the haircut was like two weeks out because they were so busy. And in those two weeks of her scratching and playing outside, the mats got worse and tighter and there were more foxtails and she ended up getting a hot spot. So then the groomer was like, well, I can't help you. It's beyond my control. I said, yes, I'm aware. So then I had to go to the vet. So I dropped Jaja off at the vet this morning. I'm so sad. Um, she's got a pretty bad hot spot underneath her armpit. They are going to shave that. And I said, Ooh, well, you're in there. So they're going to actually do a sedation uh, procedure. And then while she is sedated, they are going to shave her legs and her feet, which were pretty bad. I got a lot of the mats out, but it's pretty bad. And the underside um, and her belly and her chest, which is where she's laying in the foxtails and in the dirt, and it's making it worse and worse and worse. And then once she's there, then she's on her grooming schedule. And it's just, it's kind of been a nightmare, you know? And I share this because I know there are other dog owners out there who understand, especially people that live in rural areas with foxtails and prickers and goat heads and all of the things that I am literally picking out of my dogs for every single night. And I feel so bad and everybody is busy and everybody is booked. I actually, the vet couldn't get me in. So I had to go in this morning to like their emergency drop off and just wait. Um, and they were able to get her and they were like, we think it's probably best if we put her under and then shave her. I was like, yes, I, I didn't know that that was a thing you did. Yes, that is exactly what I want. And I was like, look, she might look like an Afghan and a show dog, but she's a farm dog and she does not need a fancy haircut. She needs to not be covered in prickers. <laughs> and so... Ah, stay tuned. Check out Instagram. Again, this is being recorded early. So check out Instagram and scroll back a bit and look for the picture of Jaja for her before and afters for her haircut. Um, I have no idea what she's going to look like, but I will post it on the internet because, you know, she's adorable and she deserves a nice short haircut. Uh, and now I can take her back on hikes because I was really concerned about ticks and like not being able to get in. And now that her whole underside will be shaved and her legs will be shaved, she'll be able to start going on hikes with me again, which I have missed having her on the trail. And we're actually thinking about planning a dog friendly, like maybe one or two night camping trip just to see how she does. Because I went to Pet PetSmart Petco. I don't know. I mean, potato, potato, right? I went there and they had like an outdoorsy dog accessories section with like little boots and life jackets and sleeping bags. I don't know which dog would sleep in a sleeping bag. Mine won't, but maybe some dog would. Inflatable dog mattresses, like a lot of extra stuff. But I did, I got her a camping blanket specifically for her. So she has her own camping gear and she has her own hiking bag. But they had at Petco, they had water bladder dog packs, which I'm not entirely sure how a dog would drink out of a water bladder straw. I don't know. I just, I said, you know what? It, I have, I, it's fine. We're good. I did not get that. I only got the camping blanket, but they got me, man. I was like, what? Dog camping accessories. <laughs> 
And if this grooming, haircut, sedation, foxtail removal thing wasn't costing me almost $500, I probably would have gotten her something more than just a single blanket. But times are tough and things are expensive. (laughs) And I will say, before I wrap this up, it's interesting how that whole bankroll phenomenon shows up in this episode too. It's interesting to me how a lot of these themes sort of like weave through. And when I start paying attention to them and doing education specifically on them, I see it so much more and I'm able to really pinpoint it and like work. So here's a call to action because bankroll privilege sort of came up a couple times in the last couple episodes. If you want to tell your story and you are one of those people that had extreme bankroll privilege, like a spouse that was literally paying for everything and you were sort of faking it till you make it like the whole time, I want to talk to you. So message me, therealrobertoblevins at gmail.com. And let's make an episode specifically about the phenomenon of having this invisible bankroll that nobody talks about. It just, it's that cushion to fall back on if you fail, right? It's not a lot of people have it. And it's a really big part of being in the top of an MLM. And I'm curious. So if you fall into those criteria and you are ready and willing to share your story, hit me up. Let's make an episode together. Other than that, have a wonderful rest of your week. Enjoy this episode and I will see you next week. Welcome back to another episode of Life After MLM. We are continuing our education. I mean, what else did you expect, right? We're diving deeper into taboo subjects and topics that make us uncomfortable, and we're making them less uncomfortable by having like real conversations about it. So I really am very excited about this episode today. I would love to welcome to the show, Lila Feinstein from A Stripper's Guide on Instagram. Maybe you've heard her name before. Maybe you've seen the account. She was on Danielle's podcast. We did a little episode there. I'm going to link that in the show notes as well so that you can catch up on that. But Lila, welcome to the show. It is so great to finally connect and to be sitting here talking to you. I'm very excited about this. Hi, Roberta. Thank you so much. I am also super excited about this. I'm really, really happy to be here. This year, we are tackling tough topics. Uh, and one of them, in fact, last year we talked about it. There was the episode that, that I did with uh, Jillian and we talked about Paige Bergefeld. We talked about sex work. I've been wanting to have you come on the show and talk about your experiences in MLM and your experiences in the sex industry. And when you emailed me, I was like, oh my God, this is so perfect. Yes. When can you chat? Like, let's talk about, let's, let's destigmatize some of these preconceived notions about what strippers do, what strippers are, what sex work is, what it looks like. I, I'm, I just, we're going to have the tough conversation. If it's uncomfortable, if you guys are feeling uncomfortable right now, I would say maybe just listen to this episode later because <laughs> it's an important topic and I think it's important to listen to, but if you're not ready, that's okay too. Yeah, totally. I, I just want to say, I really, really appreciate you bringing me on and wanting to talk about this and it's so important to me to, well, let me give a little like blip about what I do. So I run a stripper's guide and a stripper's guide podcast. I've been a stripper for going on nine years now, and I'm a writer and an anti-misogyny educator. So basically it's my mission to kind of like bridge the gap between the sex worker community and the non-sex worker community and do my part to help 
just educate folks on exactly what you're saying. Like, what is sex work? Most importantly, that sex workers are people, that we are valuable members of society. We've always been here. We will always be here. It's not going anywhere. And it is time for society to embrace us and stop relegating us to the shadows and just see us as like the normal humans we are. Absolutely. I I think one of the things that was that I was so struck in the episode about Paige that Jillian and I talked about was just how it was almost made that it was her fault because she was doing this on the side. She was an escort on the side and she was hiding this and that she somehow deserved to be stalked and murdered and slandered all around. And I think that's a really important thing. I think a lot of times in professions that maybe we don't understand or are stigmatized or I was raised by conservative people. And so I was born with preconceived notions about all of this. And I've had to unpack all of it with my own education as well. And so I think it's really important to have these conversations. I think there's people out there that don't understand or have only ever understood sex work from negative stereotypes, you know, and I, I just, it's important to me to bring topics like this to the forefront because it's something that's happening and it doesn't need to be stigmatized anymore. Do you know what I mean? I yeah. know you know what oh, I mean. Absolutely. I hope everyone listening understands sort of what we're, we're going to do here today. And I don't want anyone to feel uncomfortable. Like I said, if it's too much, you can leave. Definitely don't listen to this with your children. You shouldn't be listening to Life After MLM with your kids anyway, but this is going to be an adult topic and these are your trigger warnings. And this is what we're going to be talking about. This is uncomfortable for you. Then that's what it is. But I I do urge that when you feel more comfortable that you definitely should listen to this because again, destigmatizing this, we don't want people to feel uncomfortable when talking about literally something that happens all the time. It is a a very, very human part of life. And um, I think it's important to talk about that. Yeah. And I think, I mean, As far as like children go, I think it's really important to introduce the idea of sex work in an age appropriate way because they're going to find out about it anyways. And, you know, a lot of sex workers are parents. And so a lot of children already know that's a thing, but that's actually a really great point that I didn't even think about. (laughs) I'm thinking more like kids in the backseat. Like I agree. Yeah. This isn't blippy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Young children. I do do agree. But um, absolutely age appropriate. And I, I take that stance with my daughter too. We talk about a lot of things that maybe I think other people would be like, that's not appropriate for an 11 year old. But I also have to realize that my 11 year old is a little more uh, woke (laughs) than others. And so that I can have these conversations. So absolutely 100%. I am all about age appropriate conversations as well. And that as a parent is your decision. So you guys decide what is best for you and your family and proceed from there. But that's an excellent point. Thank you. And I think that also like, you know, almost all of us were born into some type of belief system that stigmatizes sex workers because all of us were born into a global capitalist patriarchy and both hand in hand capitalism and patriarchy are are the thing that make sex work so dangerous because it's not inherently dangerous but it's dangerous because we have all of these systems of oppression and supremacy that continue to keep sex workers really at the bottom of the social rung. And I say that with like a big asterisk because I am a thin, white, college-educated cis woman. And so I have a lot of, I'm, I choose sex work. I've chosen sex work for the past nine years and I have a lot of other opportunities to do other things. And of course, that is not standard of the sex industry. 
sort of a whole spectrum of experience and privilege and oppression within the sex industry. But almost all of us were, were taught to think, you know, negative things about sex workers and all of that. And then that stuff gets reinforced because oftentimes the only experience, unless we are a sex worker or we personally know a sex worker who is disclosing about their sex work to us, because so many of us know sex workers who are not public, you know, they're, they're keeping it to themselves. They're keeping it under wraps. They're trying to keep it on the DL. But most of us are introduced to the concept of sex work through like movies and TV. Those do not paint a pretty picture of us. And more times than not, we are dead bodies on cop shows. And it just keeps reinforcing this idea that sex workers are all going to die, that we belong dead and that we deserve it when something bad happens to us. And I did just want to like put a little, cause I know like a lot of my listeners are going to tune into this episode. So they may not be familiar with the Paige Birchfeld story, but I, so I just wanted to like give a little one sentence for those folks that um, Roberta did an awesome episode last year about a woman who was in an MLM who also was a sex worker and ended up being stalked and murdered by one of her sex work clients. And then the MLM really not publicly standing behind her at all when she went missing. And then she, you know, they found out that she had been murdered like sometime after and her her MLM was trying to distance themselves from her and from the whole thing because it was, you know, quote unquote scandalous. It came out after she went missing or after she died that she had been a sex worker and the MLM did not want that type of publicity associated with itself, which is not surprising, but I'm here to talk about why that's messed up. Let's start with your MLM journey. And as we tell that story, as things come up, we will discuss all of this quote taboo stuff and help destigmatize it and tell your story that way. Yeah, totally. So I'll try to give the the Spark Notes version of my MLM story because it actually, I was only in an MLM for maybe like six months, but that MLM was Beachbody. So I became a stripper in Boston, where I'm from, in summer of 2014. And then I moved across the country, danced in California for a little while, And then moved up to Portland, Oregon, where at that time, early in my stripper career, I was not super comfortable with a lot of the kind of boundaries around the clubs in Portland, because every city is different. Every state has different laws around like how much touching can happen and all of that. And so I was at that time not ready to dance in Portland. So I was like, okay, I need a job. And (laughs) I found some listing on Craigslist that was like, do you love fitness and helping people? And I was like, sure. That sounds great. And got on a call. It was like a weird, it was a very unique interview process. As I've heard so many folks talk about, it makes me feel good when I listen to your podcast and I hear other people who've been like roped into an MLM talk about like the weird beginning where it's like, you're having like this weird call or you're going to some weird presentation and like, you don't really know what's going on. And by the time you get off the call, you're like, I just agreed to spend some money, but also like I don't know. Like, I remember her on the call telling me that I was going to be a fitness coach and I was going to like coach people through their fitness journey or whatever. And I was like, I'm not a fitness professional. I remember saying that to her and her being like, oh, it doesn't matter. You just have to like love it. And you just have to be positive. And I was like, all right, I guess they know what they're doing. This is a job. So maybe there are other fitness professionals taking care of the clients in other ways. And my job is just to be motivational, whatever. Also, it happened to be somebody super high up at Beachbody. It's just the way the cookie crumbled. I entered, I paid the fee, whatever. I started 
I was like so unclear for the first few months. I was like, what am I even, I don't really fully, I felt like I was always kind of chasing the definition of what I was doing. Like it couldn't fully get it to make sense. But also the other thing is you're piled on with responsibilities and obligations and team meetings and team check-ins and team calls and listen to this, this training and that training, get up and start your workouts and do your meal prep for the day. And at the same time, I was nannying. So I was I had to be out of the house at like 7.30 in the morning. Anyway, so I was getting up at like four o'clock in the morning, working out, meal prepping, getting on a bus, going to nanny. It was not good. And also something that it did, sugar warning for folks, some body dysmorphia and eating disorder stuff. I had had disordered eating throughout my entire teens and 20s. And I was definitely like in the orthorexic realm and being in Beachbody absolutely gave me such an excuse to lie to myself about what I was doing. I was getting super obsessive and weird about my food. I was working out way beyond what was healthy or normal. I was exhausted because I was getting up so early in the morning to do it. I was lying to myself and telling myself that that was, you know, wellness and fitness and healthy and all of these code words that are really just there to cover up this disgusting diet culture that is so pervasive in our society. So in Beachbody, they have as a coach, you run challenge groups. So it's like 30 days or 90 days or whatever, where you're sticking with folks that you have also roped into the MLM <laughs> to buy the Beachbody products and do the workouts with you. And, and that's your kind of, that's the coaching yeah, um, I was actually in a group like that. The very first time I ever, I didn't ever join Beachbody, but I bought a Pio DVD. And I was put, okay, yeah. This was before the streaming. And I was put in one of those accountability groups. Yes. And I was like, I don't want to be held accountable. Like, I want to work out if I want to. <laughs> yeah. Or not yeah. work out. I don't yes. want to tell you what I'm eating. You don't need to see what I'm putting in my shake or whatever. Like, no, I, so I don't invasive. want any of this. It was super invasive. And yeah. in fact, it was the opposite effect for me. I was like, I'm like, no, I'm not going to Good for you. any of this. Like, And Good I didn't even you. work out. I only think I used the DVD twice. And I was like, this is weird. And I don't need an accountability group. It, in fact, was hindering my progress. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely. And like. I definitely had folks like that too, who were like, meh, I'm not going to do the groups. And I remember being so personally annoyed at people when they like wouldn't do my groups. What being in an MLM did to me psychologically was so dangerous. And that does play into everything we're going to talk about. But first of all, monetizes and transactionalizes every single human interaction that you have. I touched on this briefly on Danielle's podcast, but I'm autistic and <laughs> the cold DMing people, I made an, they made me make an Instagram. Beachbody was like, you should have an Instagram. That's the reason I have an Instagram. I'm so glad now because now it's my stripper's guide Instagram. That's the same Instagram I started. That was once my Beachbody Instagram. The real Roberta Blevins is my old LuLaRoe <laughs> Instagram. That's awesome. <laughs> well, that's hilarious. And they teach you to like cold message people. And I'm like, I'm a Virgo. Like I will do the job and I will do it to the 20,000th degree. And I was like, within, you know, within a few weeks, I'm out of people I know. I'm not, I can't DM anybody else. I don't know anybody else. And so I was like full blown. First, it was like the people from high school that I never talked to in high school, but now I'm DMing them. And then it was friends of friends on the internet. And this was all coming to me as like instructions from my 
coach from my upline and I'm taking them very literally because I am autistic. And if you tell me to do something, I'm going to do exactly the thing that you told me to do. So I'm like cold DMing random ass dudes. Meanwhile, I'm publicly a stripper. I'm just, I'm like, people thought I was a catfish because I would, I would approach them with the like, Hey, how are you? Like, I remember so distinctly, especially like the friends of friends layer when it was just, I was just finding random people on Facebook that I also had friends in common with. To me, one of the layers that I appreciate about myself, that is a wonderful combination of autism and my deep desire to burn the patriarchy to the ground is that I've always been like, I refuse to act differently just because I'm a hyper feminine person. I refuse to, if you think I'm flirting, if I'm being nice to you and you think I'm flirting with you, like that's on you. I'm not going to hold that shit. Like I'm not going to change the way I act because people look at me a certain way or whatever. But (laughs) it was like, I'm cold DMing random dudes. Hey, I see that you work out. (laughs) And like not telling them, not pitching them right away. Like trying to like, rope them into a conversation. It was so wild. I think it's a sign of also like I had a very different social network than the typical folks on this particular Beachbody team, which was again, I was the direct downline of like a coach that was super high up there. And she was a cis white woman whose network was extremely quite. And I remember because I was, I remember looking like everybody who was on the call, almost everybody on our team calls was white. These were large team calls. And I was doing like things with like the coaches in my little group. And then I was also on like large calls that had all, cause her downline was huge at all these people in her downline. Almost everyone was white. And one of the questions that I started asking early on was I was like, hey, I'm a stripper. I'm not going to hide that. And like, I'm going to use that. That piece of information is part of who I am. And I'm going to like, I'm not going to like fuck with people who aren't okay with that. Like, I'm only going to reach out to, you know, people who like get me and get who I am or whatever. And also I was really determined. (laughs) This was a, this was never going to happen. There was no way for this to happen. I was really determined to have an inclusive environment on my team that was racially inclusive, inclusive of trans folks, fat folks, because those are my values, but there is absolutely no way to participate in Beachbody and not promote white supremacy. Do you ever wonder how much of your personal data is out there on the internet just for anyone to find? I promise it's more than you think. Your name, contact info, social security number, home address, even information about your family members. It's all being compiled by data brokers and openly sold online. This can lead to a lot of problems, including identity theft, phishing attempts, harassment, and unwanted spam calls. But now you can protect your privacy with Delete Me. Signing up for the service is super easy. Just provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. They send you regular, personalized privacy reports showing what info they found, where they found it, and what they removed. I got my report, and I was floored with the results. Of the 105 data brokers they checked, 83 of them had my data. Delete Me then removed 173 listings of my personal data off the internet. And they make sure that it stays off too. Take control of your data and keep your private life private 
by signing up for Delete Me at a special discount just for our listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and use promo code MLM at checkout. The only way to get the 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and enter code MLM at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash MLM code MLM. Head over to quince.com and grab yourself a little something something and support the show by supporting our sponsors. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and say hello to lightweight fabrics and classic styles. I have been taking advantage of the beautiful weather and getting outside for daily walks, and I cannot say enough good things about the flow knit high rise boyfriend jogger from Quince. Seriously, running errands, doing school pickups, swinging by the farmer's market, or taking Jaja for a stroll around the lake, these bad boys are versatile. I love the deep pockets, the high waistband, and the internal hidden drawstring. They're quick drying, moisture wicking, antimicrobial, and the four-way stretch makes them so comfortable. They're made with 88% recycled polyester and the Global Style Standard Certified Yarn dramatically lowers environmental impact by diverting landfill and ocean-bound plastic. Not to mention using recycled claims standard approved dyeing, washing, and manufacturing processes with low water and eco-friendly dyes. They have become an absolute favorite, and you can save up to 59% off the high-end counterpart by shopping with Quince. Throw on a cotton modal scoop neck tee and some sneakers, and you've got a perfect effortless outfit. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash MLM for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash MLM to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MLM. There is no way, because if you're getting behind the the whole program in general promotes absolute thin supremacy, thin supremacy is white supremacy. It, it is born of Nazism. This is documented history. This like bodybuilder workout culture was born of Nazi culture and is the whole thin ideal worship that we have in this country is so well in this country, in this global society. As you know, Roberta, and as so many of your listeners know, but a lot of us are constantly waking up to is the idea that to be anti-fat is not only horrific for folks who are fat, but also racist, hands down, period, no arguing on that. And so as a thin white woman, part of part of what you do at Beachbody is they like make you take before and after pictures of yourself when you do a certain program, workout program, nutrition program, quote unquote, nutrition program, whatever. And so I'm posting before and after pictures of an already extremely thin white woman going from very thin to more very thin. And it that in and of itself is such violence. And there's no, no matter what my intentions were, no matter what I thought I believed, my own relationship to diet culture was I had not internally unpacked my own anti-fat bias. And even though I thought I was only turning that lens on myself, there's no way to turn that lens only on yourself. And so not only am I putting these harmful pictures out there, I'm also pulling people into workout programs where they're going to be subjected to DVDs where extremely fit, thin trainers are idealizing that body type and like 
literally putting you down if you're not, you know, working on your summer body or whatever, when it's like, we all have summer bodies if we exist in the summertime. Right. I I hate that. I hate that. That's wow. It's really interesting because you talked about your orthorexia and just, there's so much supremacy from that like vantage point Mm -hmm. of like being thin. This is what you want to look like. Don't you want to look like me? And even when you're so thin to feed into the orthorexia and become even more thin, because that's what you know, Beachbody says gets the results, gets the people yeah. in, gets people to join your team. Isn't that what you want? And it really is rooted in supremacy and being better than someone else. And to be like, I work out, I'm not fat or, ew, uh, you know, and to have mm-hmm. sort of even that, that stigma of like, I'm better than you. I would never be fat. I would never join an MLM. I would never do those things because I'm better. It's so rife in the system and I, we don't talk about it, but it's there. It's rooted in all of it. The air we breathe. So there's this fat activist named Aubrey Gordon. I don't know if listeners are, are you, do you know her? She's one of the co-hosts of the maintenance phase podcast, which is so awesome. And like also so funny. And so I, I just read her second book just came out. It's called, you just need to lose weight and 19 other myths about fat people. And I just want to like read this quote because it's so relevant to your work, Roberta, and your community, and also so relevant to sex work and feminism in general. There is no way to break through the oppressions that you and I are attempting to break through without standing by the movement to destigmatize fatness and without like this, none of this can happen if we don't support fat folks. Because this is all about breaking through diet culture bullshit and also supporting sex workers. All of this is about body justice and bodily autonomy and respect for each other's bodies. And that includes fat people who are some of the most bodily disrespected people in this world. So this quote from Aubrey's book says, discrimination against fat people is so endemic, most of us don't even realize it's happening. That is, it isn't that anti-fat discrimination doesn't exist. It clearly does, and it has been proven to have devastating effects. It's that anti-fat discrimination is so prevalent and ubiquitous, many of us have a hard time identifying it. Like the air that we breathe, it is invisible to us, a natural part of our environment. It stops looking like harmful patterns of exclusion and starts to look like just the way things work. Oh, wow. Just the way things work. That is... God, I love Aubrey. That is so powerful. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, that is how anti-sex worker discrimination works as well. It's like it's in the air we breathe. We assume that sex workers are fallen. I use the word women as a blanket term here. They're sex workers of all genders, but those who bear the most stigma are those who are perceived as feminine. There is nobody more endangered than Black trans femme sex workers. And so the way that we as a society think about sex workers as disposable human beings is often akin to how we think of fat people. Absolutely. Uh, Wow. I will say growing up, again, conservative family, middle class, white, San Diego, suburbs, just lots of privilege, so much. And I, you know, I know that. And I've spent the last 42 years of my life, well, not the last 42 years, probably the last 10, realizing that and breaking it apart and listening to people who have the voice that I don't have 
and the experience that I don't have to say, look, I know that you've never experienced that, but I have, and this is what's happened to me. And it's been really hard because my whole life growing up, like the two worst things that you could ever be would be like a sex worker Mm -hmm. or fat. Yeah. And it was just like, there were so many things that were said to me, these microaggressions that were racist. Looking back on it now, I'm like, that's a racist thing to say. Racist microaggressions and just these little things like fat phobic and in a time where LGBTQ back in the 80s, it wasn't as big as it is now, but it's still, it was transphobic and it was just homophobic, all of it. These little yeah. microaggressions of, oh, you don't want to be that. Well, you want to get an education so you don't have to fall back on that. Right. Like that's like, there's no other choice. Like that's the bottom of the barrel. Yeah. You're a fat person or you're a sex worker or yeah. you're just not worthy. And mm-hmm. it just, it was ingrained in me. And remember thinking those things and being like, ugh, I would never do that. Or ew, that's the worst. And then having to really sit in that and really break it up and go, where does this thought process even come Mm. from? Because that's not me. That's not something that I would inherently have ever thought or ever been afraid of. And really having to sit in that and break that curse and not say, oh, the worst thing you could be or these microaggressions to my child. Yeah. To make her feel that any decision she made would not be what mom wants me to do. It's not my life. Mm -hmm. And it's been very, very hard. So the fact like, I just want to appreciate this conversation so much, but like, I'm connecting to so much of it, just in my own bias that I was bred into that I didn't even choose. I did not consent to feel this way or think this way. (laughs) Yeah. So well said. Didn't consent to think this way. I mean, I... I promise we're going to talk more about how sex work is related to MLF culture, but I think it's relevant to say I also was born into a, particularly my mom. My mom is a white liberal academic and that whole world. So I was raised believing that I was in a like liberal household and I was raised in pretty academic heavy environment. It was never a question like, I was going to college, you know what I mean? Like there, that was happening. Even when I myself at 18 years old was like, absolutely not, I don't want to go. And I was right, looking back, it wasn't for me, not knocking college, like absolutely not. It just was not the right time in my life. And it was not the right learning environment for me. Nobody, even myself, nobody knew I was autistic. I needed educational supports that I didn't even know were available. Like that's why it wasn't right for me, but I did go. And then I was in the sort of like academic world as a university student, which was very eye-opening as the years went on, both during and after school. I was in college. It took me a while. I was there from my 18th birthday till I was like 22, I think, or 23. And then I became a stripper at 25. And so I would say like throughout my, my late teens to my mid-20s, it was this huge awakening to the limits of white feminism and realizing that the feminism that I had been brought up in was essentially like at its core anti-femme. You know, I also, I'm queer and it took me until I was 28 years old to really fully see myself as queer because I was raised in an environment that called itself feminist, but microaggressions towards femness and femininity were very prevalent. And 
I was, you know, my mom, I've seen her in a dress one time, seen her in makeup almost never. And that's fine. You know, it's whatever. Everybody should be how they want to be. But I was kind of subtly and actively discouraged from expressing my hyper femininity, especially as I got older, especially after I hit puberty, I was put down a lot by not just my mom, but like by white feminism in general, like the culture that I was around laughing at my interests, laughing at my fashion sense, making me think that I was, you know, legally blonde. Like you can't be smart and cute. So pick one. Nobody's going to take you seriously if you're this feminine. And that's, those are the messages that I internalized throughout my entire life. And it was only really like really, truly like becoming a stripper. Finally, I got to express myself the way I wanted. I want to go to work dressed like Dolly Parton every day. I want that. I like that. And I enjoy that. I mean, like I get to do that now whenever I want, not just at the strip club. It's helped me blossom so much as a musician to like realize that I can be all of me all the time if I want to. And I can get on stage in my like G string and high heels, whether I'm at the strip club or like on a nightclub stage singing, I can do what I want. And like, if you want to put me down for my femininity, like, fuck you. But (laughs) so that kind of that subtle sort of like eroding of my confidence and my femininity was such an important experience for me to have as somebody who did end up entering the sex industry, especially with all of the privileges that I have socially and allowing me to see the way that like anti-femness is essentially anti-sex worker. If you have biases against femininity, then you will have biases against sex workers and vice versa. And one of the things that I saw in the beach body culture and that I immediately recognized, like I didn't really pay attention to the MLM world after I got out of beach body. I was like, that was weird. And I like never looked back. I started to get really, really interested in 2020. I've basically been doing like for the past three years, I've been educating myself about cult dynamics and about how group abuse works and cultic abuse works because I'm also a one-on-one abuse survivor of romantic relationships. And seeing the more I studied that phenomenon, the more I started to get introduced to like the anti-cult activism world. And so when Lula Rich came out, I was like, I'm gonna watch that. And I was so excited to see it. And I was like, oh my God, I recognize this. I, holy shit, like I get this. Oh my God, it wasn't just Beachbody. There's all these systems that are like this. I saw a reflection of the sort of white woman, anti-sex worker supremacy. The more I explored the MLM universe at large, especially through your podcast, Robert, I've learned so much from your guests, just hearing from different the culture inside different MLMs. I'm like, it's the same shit. And I'm not surprised. I mean, most MLMs, at least in this country, are populated mostly by white women because socioeconomically, we're the ones with the most money. And so, you know, socially, the way MLMs are set up, they're targeting women, they're targeting cis, straight women with some money to spare. And that means- so it's, so it's white women. <laughs> so Especially white women. if you've got a husband who's got yes. a bankroll that yes. you can float to appear successful while you try to flounder through this scam. Yeah. Yeah. Where your yes. bills are still getting paid. Your vacations are still happening. You still have the beautiful Instagram with all the beautiful things because you have as this white woman who's married and in this middle-class 
cesspool. Yes. Yeah. That you have this advantage. Yeah. It's a privilege. And I, I think people don't understand that. It's yeah. like, well, I, well, I'm so successful. And I'm like, but but you were able to fail. I understand that I had privilege. Mm. When I started this podcast, I was not paying rent. I was surviving out of a divorce and I had a place to stay that I had the ability to put mm-hmm. the time and energy into something. I recognize my privilege in that. Was it a fun time? No, thankful for the privilege, but not yeah. a great time. But again, like not everybody has those benefits to Absolutely. be able to just dive into something without checking anything and being like, hope there's water in the pool. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that quickly in trying to build my own downline and be an inclusive environment, I was actively trying to recruit people who weren't, I really at first thought it was a business opportunity. Like everybody, you know, we all start in good faith, whatever. And a lot of people continue in good faith. Most people really think they're doing something good. And so like, I was like, I don't just want to target other skinny white women. I want everybody to feel included. I want everybody to feel invited. And so very quickly in me trying to recruit through my own social network, running into people who are like, hey, I'm poor and black and everybody I know can't afford $140 to start this random ass workout program with shakes. And I was like, yeah, I'm out. That was pretty, I mean, that was, it was pretty quick in and out for me because I saw the world around me in the MLM just not matching my values, but it's in the work that I've done afterwards and in learning more about MLM culture in general that I see such a such a vast intersection between like what I'm doing over at a stripper's guide and like what you're doing here. And so what your episode about Paige Birchfeld really kind of got the gears turning for me thinking about was something that I do a lot. I do a lot of like work with sex workers on their love lives. And that's something that I talk about a lot on my podcast. It's, It's like, to me, the sort of like North star of my vision for what I want to do in the world is help sex workers and their partners and their communities all feel more connected with each other and safer and happier. And like, I just want sex workers, sex workers are so isolated by stigma. So few of us really get the opportunity to have loving relationships, but like, it's not because we're sex workers. It's because the people around us can't break through their stigma and love us for who we are. It's so isolating. It's so isolating. I've been there. I've, I've been in relationships that I'm trying to make work with somebody who like will not work through their own biases around my sex work. And it's devastating. And, but also I'm like, I won't accept that in my life. And I have a lot of supportive friends and family. And so I can walk away from somebody like that and know that, I will find better, but so many sex workers don't even know anybody who could possibly look at them without stigma. And that's why a lot of sex workers hide what they do from their lovers, from their friends, from their family, from whoever. In a lot of cases, it's for their physical safety, but also very often it's so that they don't lose all their relationships. And so that's kind of the mission of a stripper's guide is to really help sex workers have healthier relationships, but not through this very common lens of like, you're damaged because you're a sex worker. And in spite of your sex work, we're going to turn your life around and, and make sure you have healthy relationships in the future. It's like, no, people need to love us and accept us and embrace us as we are. So one thing that I do in my podcast and one-on-one with 
sex workers is kind of help folks approach dating and romance with a pro sex worker attitude, like advocate for themselves in those circumstances. One of the kind of like standard things that I, that I teach is when you're early in a romantic relationship, preferably on a first date, but you could do this at any time in any relationship. And this also applies to groups. So this method that I like help folks with in, in their dating life, I can see how it could be useful for folks in MLM. So I'm going to explain it and then talk about how it applies to MLM and any group you're in. There are questions you can ask up front to determine where the person you're talking to is at in their own sort of headspace and belief system around sex work. Like, for example, I even if you don't want to come out of the closet right away and you don't want to tell people you're a sex worker on the first date, gauging their attitude around it is super important. And you can ask them things like, have you ever dated a sex worker? What do you think about stripping? Have you ever dated a stripper? Would you ever date a stripper? Like what? And if they say something like, well, maybe I date a stripper, but definitely not, not somebody who does porn. Like right away, that's like, hmm that's not good. Like maybe you're, maybe you're just a stripper and you don't do porn. And so you think it doesn't matter. And you think that, oh, as long as they wouldn't date a porn star, it's okay. Cause they'll still accept me. But what that is deep down is this like judgment on their part of like porn stars are lower than strippers. If you do porn or if you do escorting, you're worse. I can deal with a stripper because my impression is that they're just on stage and the customers aren't touching them or having sex with them or whatever, which is like a lot of sex workers do a lot of things. So there's like strippers who are also escorts and whatever, but like it reveals biases that are going to be a red flag for you. And the kicker is that they're going to be a red flag for you, whether you're a sex worker or not. If you're a woman, if you're a femme, if you are perceived as feminine in any way by the person that you're trying to date or already dating or whatever, and they have any bias against any sex work, that spells trouble for you. Even if you're a school teacher, even if you're not a sex worker, because what they're telling you really is that their perception of sex work matters more to them than your perception of yourself or your relationship to sex or sex work. And I have had so many, so many femmes out there, Robert, I'm sure, I don't know a femme who doesn't have this experience of like people not trusting us, like a partner not trusting us or somebody not believing that like your friends are really just your friends and it's platonic or like you weren't flirting with the checkout person at the grocery counter or like, yeah, I can see you nodding. Yes. Like I'm like, yes, yes. I am, I wouldn't say flirtatious. I'm just a very open person. I connect with people very quickly and I have deep friendship, platonic relationships. And I, I can't even tell you like how many times I've had been in relationships where those people were jealous of my friendships or made snide comments. And they were all red flags that I ignored. And I'm, this is, you know, years and years and years ago. And looking back on it now as someone who's much older and more experienced and can see the nuances they were absolutely red flags. They were red flags that I should have been like, yikes, if you think this way about women or you think this way about people, just humans in general, that you are superior to them for any reason because you are morally superior, ethically mm -hmm. superior, financially superior, whatever. Uh, you believe that you deserve more or better things than someone else. Like it's a huge red flag, regardless of whether that person is a sex worker or a fast food worker, it doesn't matter. Like if yeah. you really fully believe that someone else like is beneath you, that's a problem. That's a red flag. That's a you problem. That is not a me problem. And I am getting the fuck away from it. 
as fast as possible. And I wish I would have listened to myself back then because those red flags, I was like, that's just kind of like a weird thing you said. Is that weird to you? I I shouldn't have been having those conversations with my friends. I should have been having those conversations with the mirror going, that's a weird thing. What Mm. the fuck? Well, but it's also just part of the way that femininity is conditioned. And because I know that so many listeners of your podcast must be femmes. I know it must be true because that's who's in MLMs. Like MLMs target femmes. MLMs target women. The way that our femininity is regulated within a patriarchy, like we are constantly being checked and balanced by the like force majeure day (laughs) patriarchy. Absolutely. And how that is really at its essence control control of femininity and the way that we use sex workers as the measuring stick for what femininities are allowed to access what spaces, what femininities are allowed to be safe, although there is no femininity that is safe in a patriarchy, but like the stigma and the bias against sex workers is what patriarchy uses to control all femininities keeping us down at the bottom and using going back to the trope of like dead sex workers on law and order is like that is the consequence of stepping out of line of being a bad girl instead of a good girl is like the ultimate bad girl is the sex worker and so especially the black and brown sex worker, especially the trans sex worker, especially the fat or disabled sex worker, somebody who doesn't meet these, what I call marketable standards, beauty standards, which we've created in our culture. It's not that thin white women are inherently beautiful. It's that that's what we've decided is the most marketable. Right. And then we fetishize everything else that's not quote unquote marketable as these like fetishes. When there are totally normal things that people are into on their everyday basis, but we're like blasting it as like, ooh, it's taboo. It's like, ooh, you're kind of like a freak if you do that. Like you're kind of yeah. like, like, but it's like, it's totally it's normal. It's all it should normal. be anybody's <laughs> business what you do in your bedroom or wherever you decide to do it with your partner. It's consensual between the people involved in the act and like, uh, it just makes me, mm, yeah, no, I'm just, I'm very worked up right now. Yeah. And it's so prevalent in MLM culture because you were saying to me, like when we were emailing about this episode, you referenced purity culture. And I was like, yeah, that's the, that's the thing. MLM was really my sort of real life introduction. I knew that culture existed, but I'm like from the coast and I didn't grow up in a super like, and and I didn't grow up in a religious household. I didn't grow up in a household that emphasized quote unquote purity in any way. I never had to feel the like visceral effects of that sort of branch of patriarchy that is like, be a good girl or you're going to be excommunicated from 
all human relationships, which is really the essence of purity culture is like, don't drop off, don't drop off that tiny tightrope of being a good girl, because then nobody will love you. Nobody will want you. And like, we are human beings. We are biologically wired for relationships. And the way that we control femininity in a patriarchy is to threaten us with no intimacy, threaten us with like, you will never be fully seen because who you fully are is wrong. And nobody could ever like, nobody could ever handle all of you. All of you is too much. And that pressure is internalized, which is why we do things like gaslight ourselves into thinking, oh, that thing he said to me was weird. Should I be weird about it? Am I making a big deal out of it? Oh, it's probably fine, whatever. Like, so that's why we oftentimes can't have these conversations with ourselves in the mirror, because we know on this show, we know how coercive control works and patriarchy is coercive control. And the way that that purity culture kind of braids in with all of this, the thin supremacy, the white supremacy, And the things that are promoted as valuable and desirable within MLMs are so often packaged in this like perfect white bread, middle America bow. And I got to see when I was in Beachbody and I got to know like, or at least got to, got to view a window into the other women on my uplines team and in her community and my upline herself they were all white. I didn't meet anybody who wasn't white in the team above me. And a lot of them were, I could, I understood from being in there, were already in that culture from growing up. A lot of them grew up in like conservative Christian households. A lot of them brought Christianity into their sort of MLM preaching, I guess. And and I'm certainly not knocking Christianity at all. Like I absolutely not. What I am critiquing is the distortion of Christian values, which right. is so prevalent within MLM. And the, the whitewashing way- of Christianity. Yes. And the yeah, supremacy I mean, of Christianity. Yeah. Christianity, like Islam, Judaism, all indigenous religion, like all, all essential human worship is developed from like love of self and community and feeling a connection to something greater in ourselves. Nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. When you're coming from that place, that's a beautiful thing. But like when you mix supremacist values with your beliefs about what is good and bad and right and all that, then you got a real problem on your hands. And I see like, and just the way that Christianity is weaponized into a tool of white supremacy and how how deftly that is disseminated in MLM culture through the culture itself, because not only does it transactionalize every interaction and not only does it kind of put thinness and whiteness on a pedestal, but it also puts like heteronormativity on a pedestal. And again, nothing wrong with straight people. Like some people, some people are heterosexual. It's fine. Like, (laughs) but like, it's very different to be heterosexual than to be heteronormative, which is basically believing and or perpetuating the idea that anything that is not heterosexual, like husband, wife, monogamy, marriage under, you know, legal marriage, Christian marriage, whatever, producing children, Anything outside of that, which sex workers very much fall into because sex work has been throughout history, well, throughout Western capitalist history, been scapegoated as the reason why heteronormativity fails. Like what I was talking about screening our romantic partners for biases against sex workers, because those are indicative of biases against femininity and like 
we can also do that in groups and we can also do that in say an MLM. We can look around at the culture around us and go, what am I seeing? What are the themes I'm seeing? How are people talking about femininity here? How are people who identify as women in these spaces promoting womanhood? How are these things shaking out? And like, when I ask questions, when, if I try to talk about sex work, for example, or if I try to talk about, you know, anything, if I, if I try to talk about like femininity in a non-limited way in this environment, am I allowed to raise these points? Like, I know that so many people have had the experience inside an MLM of being like, um, this thing is problematic for me. And then people being like, you're negative and like deleting their comments and shit. If you're not sure, if you're somebody who's like on the fence about the MLM you're in or whatever group you're in or whatever, like I think a really good way to gauge is to start asking questions of the people around you. Like, is this space safe for sex workers? Is this space inclusive for sex workers? Because if it's not, it's not going to be safe for any feminine person ultimately at the end of the day. And like, there's so much of that patriarchy and capitalism and white supremacy are hand in hand in hand. And MLM is kind of like putting a magnifying glass on what happens when the three of those intersect. And it's wild. And like, if you're not in a space that is safe and welcoming for all feminine people, what are you going to do about it? You know, like, are you going to, are you going to get out of that space and work against it? Are you going to try and make that space more inclusive? It's If it's an MLM, I promise you it won't happen. But like doing nothing, when you have privilege, doing nothing and staying in it is just as harmful as believing those things yourself, which is like why, even though I thought I was so inclusive in my beach body participation, my very presence there always made me a tool reinforcing the same supremacies. You know, it is, it's very interesting to hold space for femmes and to be a safe space. I mean, I try to be a safe space for, for everybody. And I think it's really important that we do create these safe spaces. I mean, the people in charge aren't creating them. It's those of us who are the victims of these oppressive systems who come out and say, Hey, I learned something and I'd like to share it. And we Mm -hmm. start podcasts or YouTube channels or Instagram pages. And we just want people to listen. I'm not here to change anyone's mind. I don't want to like, like you better believe what I say, but I am here to say, let's have a conversation about it. And maybe you think and go, oh my gosh, like I'm participating in this. I 100% have participated in microaggressions my whole life that I did not know any better. And when I learned better, I then created education around it to help take that stigma and that scariness. Because I know you guys listening right now are going, oh my God, I did that. I've done that. I've said that. Mm, (gasps) Oh my God, I didn't realize that. I didn't, I didn't, I took away the humanity of the object of my anger or my tirade. You take away something, someone's humanity. It's a lot easier to just go off and be like, they're the worst. They don't deserve anything. Absolutely. 100%. But you can't do that because people are human. We make mistakes. We make mistakes. Mistakes are normal. If you're a kind of person that's not making any mistakes, wow, what's your secret? Please. (laughs) I make so many and I'd like to make less. But here's the other thing. When you make a mistake, when you say something and you're wrong, you come out and you say, I've learned better and I'm not making these mistakes anymore. Everybody makes mistakes every single day and it is okay. 
the part that's not okay is when you realize that you are part of an oppressive system, that you are doing these microaggressions, that you are saying these things, that you are in these spaces and you are either not correcting when things are happening that you know are not, that are not true or are not just, or you're not taking the time to sit in it and go, why does this make me feel uncomfortable? Why am I feeling weird right now? Why is my, why am I having anxiety? Why is my heart beating so fast? Why do I have this feeling? That's your body being like, Hey, let's dig a little deeper, sit in that, feel it, figure out why you feel this way. Figure there could be something, there could be something. And then you're like, Oh wait, maybe I need therapy to go through this, to unpack my microaggressions to unpack the way that I'm feeling to unpack all these intersections. There's so many intersections and we're definitely going to be covering so many more this year on the show because it's really important. If we really want to do better, we have to be better too. We can't just point fingers and be like, that's bad without giving any solutions or any help or any safe places for people to come and say, I didn't know it was bad. Mm -hmm. You have educated me. How do I turn this around and move forward. We have to create those spaces. I, I, and it's so wonderful that you're creating that space in the sex work space that people can go and listen to that. We can destigmatize it. If you've ever been to a strip club and you are now telling me that, ew, sex work, shame on you. If you've ever yeah. gone to a bachelorette party, even if it makes you uncomfortable, but you've any of that, if you've ever watched porn, yeah, you are innocent here. None of that's you, the one. None yeah. of you are innocent here. And guess what? Instead of you know closing your browser and feeling shame, have some respect. Learn about why it makes you feel this way. Talk to people like Lila. Listen to her podcast. Go on her show. Ask those questions. That's what we're here for. Those questions. Why does it make me feel this way? Why am I feeling like that? How? Why is it like this? Ask those questions. That's what we live for. Well, yeah. I know I live for it. I'm sure you have turned your own entire platform into education. So I'm sure you live for it as well. It's so wonderful when I get a message from either a sex worker who's like, oh my God, I just realized I am allowed to like expect better treatment from people. Like I'm allowed to, I don't have to settle for relationships where I'm being dicked around because I'm a sex worker. I've never had the opportunity to like have that reflected back to me and affirmed to me before, but I listened to your podcast and now I'm advocating for myself better in, in dating and whatever. And also every once in a while, I'll get a message from the partner of a sex worker who's like, thank you so much. This is helping me so much. Like my partner just started sex work or whatever. And like, your podcast has really been helping me like figure out how to support them. And it's like amazing. It's so cool. Yeah. I mean, let's bring consent back into sex work, right? I'm consenting to view it. I'm consenting to participate. I'm consenting to be on stage. I'm consenting to this transaction. It is a job. It is not your right to touch me. If I'm on stage, it is not, I do not owe you anything. Yeah, you're coming into crazy. my space and you are enjoying my presence. It is not the other way around. Yeah. And I think that's absolutely. really important too to understand boundaries and understand what is and isn't okay. I hear horror stories. I have friends that work in sex work and I've heard horror stories where I'm like, what? Yeah. And so taking this stigma and and making it so it's not so taboo to just have normal conversations about, I think would make sex work such a safer place for everyone. 
I mean, absolutely. Like, I, I mean, the, the people not understanding that we are still human beings and that like, we do not deserve violence <laughs> just as nobody does. But how in this culture, sex work is criminalized in most of the world, including in this country, and sex workers face so much discrimination in the legal system. And so many sex workers have absolutely nowhere to turn if they're sexually assaulted on the job or off the job. Because just like what happened to Paige Birchfeld, people are like, well, you deserve it. Or like, well, you're a sex worker. So doesn't that mean that you're okay with it? And it's like, no, we are human beings with boundaries, just like anybody else. If I don't consent to something at work, it doesn't mean it's okay for it to happen to me. And it has happened to me. It's happened to a lot. But all of that, all of that, like me knowing I can't report it to my strip club management if I get assaulted. I know I can't. I'm relatively safe at the strip club, but I'm never 100% safe. And people have definitely pushed my boundaries in there. And I'm not even the worst, you know, story that I know. But that all leads back to patriarchy and how we are in a system where femmes are devalued, especially if we do sex work. And people who work in the sex industry are not exempt from that bias, especially the men who work in the sex industry as managers and like go-betweens, not necessarily sex workers, but I see it all the time in every corner of my life including the sex industry. And the problem and the issue is not sex work. The problem is how our culture tries to control and regulate femininity. And like, to your point, Roberta, about consent and all of that, one of the things that I wanted to drive home here in this space is the irony of MLMs or any group that enforces purity culture, like looking down on sex workers, but especially MLMs with this this emphasis on like morality and being ethical and all of that and thinking of us as unethical and immoral. Meanwhile, the business structure of MLM is so inherently predatory and unethical and like based on tricking people out of their money and time and energy and feelings of self-worth and independent thoughts. Like it's so much more than your money that gets robbed from you in an MLM. It's so true. Just to think about some of the thought processes that I had when I was deep in MLM, it's just, you don't understand unless you've been in it. And it's just a very scary place. And you don't really know what you're getting into until you're, it's too late. Yeah. Part of the reason I left Beachbody is because I could see that I was (laughs) good at it. I was like, oh shit, like, And it was really freaking me out on the calls because there were so many people that were like, I've been here for two years and like, I'm not making any money and I'm struggling. And then they would just get brushed off by management, whatever. And it was like, I was like, yeah, I could totally become this predatory force, but I can see it. I think as soon as you see it in an MLM, that's when most people pull the plug. Some people see it after five years. Some people see it after five months, whatever. But like, it's definitely so wild, like what it does to your to your mind and your thoughts and you thinking like, oh, maybe I'll be Mormon. Like that's a reasonable thing to do with your not not that being Mormon is unreasonable, but like that it would be reasonable to like randomly to convert to a religion you don't know anything about because it might help your MLM business. And I remember in my MLM, like my upline, this is so cringy and messed up and like truly exploitative. And it's the only time that I personally felt super exploited by the MLM. My upline 
basically coerced me into posting this long ass story saying that like I used to be in an abusive relationship and that's what made me not feel confident about my body. And like now that I'm in Beachbody and I feel so good about myself, Beachbody like, which isn't true. I, it's not true. I was in an abusive relationship, but it didn't have anything to do with my body shit. And like, she made me make up a story that she, dots that she connected from my life. And I felt at the time I couldn't put my finger on it, but I look back and I'm like, I feel so exploited by that because it wasn't a story I wanted to share publicly on Facebook. And like, I felt really weird about posting it and it felt like an overshare and just felt like my business that I didn't want out there and also felt untrue. And I look back and I'm like, oh, it was untrue, but I was literally being mind controlled into thinking that this was a real this was the reason that I had like body confidence issues because I, I was so nuts. Wow. Yeah. It just, it's, it's a very interesting unpacking. There's so many like comorbidities and intersections with MLM and other abusive systems. It's, it's really interesting because I agree with you. It's like, once you're really through the ringer in one abusive system, whether it's a one-on-one cult with an abusive person or you're in an MLM or you're in a religious thing, once you've really gone through the ringer and you see it for what it is, all of those red flags, you're like, there is, there it is, there it is. You can see it. You can see mm-hmm. it. Even if you've never been in that oppressive system, they use the same tactics to keep you stuck and you can see it. I can see it in the purity culture. I can see it in the faith manipulation. I can see it in other cults or other survivors I talk to. I can see it in abusive relationships with friends or abusive work situations where I was like, girl, you got to quit. Like I can see it and I can't unsee it. Sometimes I avoid things and I miss out and that's fine because I don't want to be in that space. But for me, I can see it now and I can't unsee it anymore. I've had to make a lot of really big life changes in my life in the past five years from leaving a high demand group and being like, wait, you're kind of like that too. Or here's, this is happening too. And make these really big life changes. And I'm finally getting into a point where I feel like myself again, where I feel like I'm not being controlled by anybody, where I can make a decision and I can feel confident in that decision. And it's not somebody who's playing the puppet master and pulling the strings and being like, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you going to wear that? Why are you wearing so much makeup to this thing? Like taking away my femininity, taking away my autonomy, taking away. I remember comments and things like, and it's just, it's so much work and I see it and I remember, and I think back on it now and I can pinpoint these things. I think it's so important. The cult recovery space, there's so many different kinds of cults talking to so many different people and, and finding all these intersections and just being like, oh my God, this oppressive situation is happening in this too. It's yes, the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's just repetitive. And, and maybe it's because the the top dogs at the top of all these pyramids and all these hierarchical structures are like, well, this is what works. Watch, watch what we can do. We've got them controlled with fear and misogyny and socioeconomic and class placement and all these things. And watch what we can do. Watch how high we can make them jump. Watch me watch them like dance. I just say dance, monkey dance. And they dance for me. I mean, that it's almost like that reflects our larger culture. (laughs) Another nesting (laughs) doll that we found. Exactly. Yes. I think that's such a good point. It's like, absolutely. Like being able to gauge whatever relationships you're in, whether they're, they're one-on-one or group relationships or whatever, being able to vet those relationships for systemic 
biases and seeing how prevalent they are, seeing how much folks are willing to talk about them or unpack them or or examine them with you. And like, that's really the difference between an inclusive relationship, personal or communal, and an exclusive, you know, hierarchical, imbalanced power relationship. And I think the more we are able to kind of examine our relationships for wider systemic biases, the better we are at navigating ourselves towards safety and spaces where we actually feel understood and loved and respected and received. Yes. And that, like that, being in a relationship or a group situation or even a situation where you say something and someone's like, yes, I get it. I understand you. I receive that. And here I'm going to process it and I'm going to return with something just as valuable. And you're like, yes. And I receive that back like that. That is so valuable. And I'm just like, where has it been my whole life? Finally Mm, being able to foster those relationships in my work life, in my personal life, in my relationship, romantic or lack thereof life as well, and Mm. setting boundaries that work for me. And it's, it's transformative. And it really sucks that I had to like be dragged through the valley of butts to get there. (laughs) But, you you know, valley of butts. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I just, and it's, it's a good place to be now. I'm really, really happy for you. I'm really happy that you're in a space where you're feeling like you have, yeah, you are the puppet master of your own damn self. Like that's such a beautiful place to be in. And I, as somebody who has also been through the Valley of Butts, like I totally can relate and I would like to receive that and reflect it back to you. Absolutely. I love that. And I know some people are like listening, going, what the hell just happened? But here we are. We're talking about this. We're creating like safe spaces. This is what a safe space feels like. You can say something and you can feel that your message is being received and understood and returned. And that's what we're fostering here. That's what we're fostering. And I think that is so important. And I think sometimes that gets gets lost in advocacy and activism sometimes mm. that we're so focused on taking something down that we we barrel through a lot of stuff and we we don't often look at the casualties that we're leaving in our wake um and so that's something that I vowed to be a safe space and to and to try to foster those relationships and to help people out of difficult situations and it's what you're doing too and I'm just I'm so proud of the work that you're doing and that Thank there you. is enough intersectionality that we can be friends and have conversations like this and it actually makes sense. Oh my God. There's so much. It's I'm trying to get better at like making my audience understand why I'm on these like MLM and cult podcasts. <laughs> Cause like it is so there is so much intersection between our experiences. And I think a lot of that has to do with like being women, being femmes in abusive spaces because the same the same shit over and over again like the way abuse works it's not creative it's not new it's the same the formula is the same and when there are systemic power imbalances the formula of abuse will go to wherever your vulnerability is and for a lot of us our vulnerability has to do with just the walk of life that we are with just who we are in the world. It's not, doesn't have to be a personal, emotional vulnerability, although there's plenty of preying on that as well. But like, we've both been through this kind of tried and true method of coercive control. Yeah. It's just, 
I love having conversations like this. I, I think it's very important. And I'm hoping that there were people listening that were like, oh my gosh, I just learned something today. I hope so too. Okay. So I just, I want to say thank you so much to having this really vulnerable conversation and to being so open to sharing your experiences and your MLM journey. And so let's circle back to MLM and let's do some rapid fire questions. You ready? Okay. I'm ready. Okay. One word that encompasses how you feel about MLMs. Oppressive. Give me a warning to somebody who wants to join an MLM. Don't. Don't. It's going to, it's going to take over your life. It's not going to give you the freedom that it promises. It is going to do the opposite and it's going to do some really weird stuff to your brain. Yeah, that's for sure. What is the worst MLM in your opinion? I mean, Beachbody's pretty bad. (laughs) Beachbody's pretty bad, but they're, I don't, they're all bad. But yeah, I would say any, any MLM that also mixes with diet culture is really bad recipe for disaster. What is the hardest lesson that you learned in MLM? That I can be a shill for the system and that there is such a fine line between oppressor and oppressed sometimes in some circumstances and that I definitely became the predator. Wow. Okay. And then give me a positive takeaway. It allowed me to really see, be, seeing that, seeing that shadow, I was able to like fully see my Karen shadow for the first time. And that's actually really important to me now in the work that I do um, is being able to be in a relationship with that shadow, especially in the sex industry and in the advocacy world, like being able to be super aware of the ways that I can weaponize my privilege and being able to see that is helpful in avoiding doing it. Yeah, absolutely. I love that answer. I love it. Thank you so much. Please tell everybody where they can find you and how they can follow you and support you. Thank you so much. Um, You can listen to my podcast, A Stripper's Guide podcast. You can find me on Instagram at A Stripper's Guide, or you can follow the pod page, which is bilingual English English and Spanish. That's at a stripper's guide podcast. You can also listen to my music, which is very intersectional with like stripper shit. And that is you just search for Lila Feinstein on Spotify, or you can follow me at Lila Feinstein on Instagram. Amazing. Thank you so much, Lila, for coming on and sharing and just being so candid. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I had a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening to Life After MLM. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. And follow us on social media at Life After MLM Podcast and my advocacy at The Real Roberta Blevins. You can find all of the links to the social accounts in our show notes. And if you just listened to that incredible story and you thought, oh my God, I have a story just like that that needs to be told, hit me up, therealrobertablevins at gmail.com. I would love to have you on the show to share your story and start your journey in life after MLM. See you next time, Hans. Hey, hey, hey.